Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle! Follow me! Follow me to freedom! Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Justin the Suffering Podcast. New York Sports Talk, Long Suffering Fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. A good week here on the podcast coming up here. We got a couple of fun things going on. Baseball season beginning on Thursday, opening day. We're going to get ready for that. We're going to give you my thoughts in the opening day in May. We're going to do our annual MLB over-unders with Phil Friata, podcast legal correspondent. That's going to be coming up in a bit. We're also going to be joined again, March Madness Final Four coming up here over the weekend. A lot of fun, very unconventional Final Four as well. I'm going to be joined by Troy Moriel, our March Madness guy. We're going to go through all that in just a bit. Make sure you lock in the show for the two-minute drills. I'll tell you why the NFL is trying to flex games of Thursday football and why this is a god-awful idea. If you're here on the Justin Suffering Podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform, and episodes there. Feel free to your feedback and starring as well. And with the podcast, even better going forward. So check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versions of the conversations with Troy and Phil up on the YouTube channel. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, let's get to our opening tip here. We're going to talk a bit about, you know, what my thoughts are on the opening day situation here with the locals as we get ready for the season start here. That's going to come up right after this. Three, two. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening day coming up here on Thursday, Major League Baseball 2023 season. So they get a very interesting year around here. The locals both are in the mix, obviously, for division titles, for playoff first, potential the World Series, favorites. They each have their own questions to deal with, though. The Yankees, the health of the rotation, obviously a big, big concern. We learned starter spring training. Frankie Montez left the year after the year, the shoulder injury. Carlos Rodon, Luis Severino, both starting the year on the IL with different injuries. Rodon's not going to miss the month of April. Severino's a lat string. We'll see how long that keeps him out here. That means the rotation beyond Garrett Cole, Nestor Cortez right now, bit thin. I mean, right now you have Clarkson and Domingo Herman in the rotation. Who knows what the fifth guy's going to be? Which, you know... That's something that could be a problem early because you could start a little slow. The offense, also a lot of the same one that ran at Brown in the playoffs last year. I mean, they didn't upgrade left field. They brought Judge back like they had to. They brought Rizzo back here. There is one little exception, though. Top prospect Anthony Volpe actually made the club out of spring training. And you credit to Volpe. He tore the cover off the ball. He looked good defensively. It looked like he was ready. And the Yankees are a lot of credit here for giving him a shot right away because the organization has been very conservative with his prospects and say, oh, we need this many gains of seasoning. We have to touch all the levels, so forth and so forth. But he earned it, and he got a shot. The worst case scenario here, he's a bit more time to Myers. That would be okay. You can just bring up Oswald Peraz and plug him right in, and he's your shortstop. But this is a jolt of excitement for a team that really needed it because there was a lot of, you know, pessimism for the Yankee fans. Say, oh, is this team, like, any better than the one we had last year, even without with Rodone? But Volpe is a shot at real upside. I guess he's something to be excited about. That rotation on the other side of town looks pretty good, even with the loss of the Quintana injury. David Peterson had excellent spring training, won the fifth starter's job here, so he's going to be in the mix. Losing Edwin Diaz of the year is a big problem because obviously we know how good Diaz is, but besides the fact that you're not going to have him, it thins the bullpen out considerably. 
David Robertson, they brought in to be the eighth inning guy. He's a finer place in your closer because he is capable of working the ninth. He's done it in New York. He's done it in big spots. He's replaced the legend, Mariano Rivera. He's up for the task. But moving Robertson up means everybody else goes up one slot in the pecking order here. At least I'm short of high caliber arm right now because we heard that Billy Eplin, Buck Warner have five high leverage guys late in games because you figure on any given day you should have two of them available. Now you're down to four, and one of them is Drew Smith, which is not great. And the second lefty is going to be a big problem here because one of the reasons they only had one was Brooks Raleigh was, oh, we'll use David Robertson to get some of these lefties out late in games. Hard to get to save in the ninth inning. The other issue here, the offense, same as the Yankees, looks virtually the same as the one that finished last year in a big slump and short in the power department. Unlike the Yankees, the Mets did not bring their big prospects north. Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos both get sent to AAA here. Third base belongs to Eduardo Escobar. He did have a hot September. Good clubhouse guy. He did not hit most of last year. He didn't hit the spring. They DFA Darren Ruff, which is a bit of a surprise, hearing it sound like they were trying to justify this trade, but credit to them moving on. The last outfield spot to be Tim LaCastro, the speed guy. That's not great. But this is a vision last year that came down to a tiebreaker. You're giving away with Tains essentially because right now the right DH is Tommy Pham and veter- and regular rotating guys here. Red Baby Mark Vientos had the power potential the Mets might really need right now. You hope it's not a repeat of last season when the Mets relied on veterans to a fault and by the time they started giving these kids shots, it was too late to make an impact. Billy Epler has said in spring training, you know what, like, they're just a phone call away. They don't have to wait for an injury. Maybe they force their way up here. I want to see it. I want to see if these guys are hitting that you say, you know what, like, We'll have a shot here. Like, if Tommy Pham is not the, the answer, is right DH, bring Mark Vientos up, let him try it. If Eduardo Escobar is not ready, why not give him a shot? These are things, give Beatty a shot. These are things to keep an eye here. Either way, both these guys, they play off bound. Exciting baseball the next few months. We're going to get into the baseball even more a little bit. We'll do an over under the Phil Friday. But up next, we're going to take a look back into the Mark Man as we get ready for the Final Four with Troy Moriello right after this. Right, we are back here on the podcast, catching up on the latest from March Madness here. Even more chaotic we could have imagined at this point last week. Joining me today, our March Madness guy. You hear him on the Carton Show as the researcher there. A little Seeing Red podcast action as well. Troy Moriel is back. Troy, how are you? Doing well, Mike. Uh, crazy weekend and you know four days of college basketball action, and I'm excited to get into it. I was like into it because last week when we talked, I had all four Final Four teams left. Now I have zero. <laughs> yeah, and that's just how it goes, right? I mean, you know, who, who really could have predicted uh, these four group of teams? I know UConn, of course, uh, you know, a good amount of people had them going to the Final Four. But, man, San Diego State, FAU, and Miami, though that trio, uh, I think I heard a stat like like of on the ESPN brackets, like 200,000 people had all four of those teams getting knocked out in the first round, let alone making it to the final four. So it just shows you the unpredictability of March Madness. I mean, last year we had essentially the blue blood final four with Duke UNC and uh, Kansas Villanova. And now this year we have three teams making their final four debut. Uh, and we have no fin- no top three seeds in the final four for the first time ever. Uh, it's just awesome. It shows kind of the duality of March Madness in that, listen, some years it's going to be you know, kind of chalk and you're going to kind of get what you expect. 
And there's going to be years like this where, you know, not a single person in, in America or on the face of the earth could actually predicted uh, this, this, these four teams. Yeah, I think of one, I think obviously as college basketball fans, we love this stuff because it's a lot of fun. It's nice to see, like, especially the mid-majors get this opportunity. We know we're going to have one guaranteed to play for the title on Monday, which is pretty wild to think about it mm-hmm. here. The one entity mm-hmm. I think is disappointed here is CBS because their ratings compared to what they could have had to have last month were going to be, like, way down. Yeah, yeah, that's the only thing. I, I think that these these networks, they probably like to get at least one. Uh, or, you know, if, t- if they had to pick, they'd have probably one of one uh, kind of Cinderella story into the into the final four, but not three. Like, that's a little bit excessive for them. Uh, and then you have UConn, which is obviously a draw. But, yeah, if they could have gotten, you know, Texas and Alabama and the, the bigger programs in there, uh, the rating probably would have been a little bit better. But, you know, that's just how it goes. Some years it's going to – you're going to get the get the big blue blood programs, and then some years like this, uh, you know, the rating might struggle a little bit, but it's still going to be awesome basketball. Yeah, I think this is Jim Nance's last Final Four too. He gets Florida, Atlantic, San Diego State, Miami, and UConn. <laughs> yeah, especially for him, you know, with with Houston, uh, you know, him, him being a, a Houston guy, uh, you know, the, the Final Four being played there, it felt like it was kind of, uh, you know, shaping up to be a storybook ending for them. I thought that it would would be. I uh, they were my pick to win it all, but uh, unfortunately for him, yeah, he gets he gets uh, three teams that have never been there before. Absolutely. Before we get into more of this, I'll talk a little coaching carousel because obviously we're keeping an eye on this stuff here. A couple of interesting hires made the last week. As we, predict, we mentioned last week, I only moved on quickly from Patino. They hired Tobin Ayers from, from Fairleigh Dickinson to be their new head coach. What do you think about that move? Yeah, um, listen, I'm not going to pretend like I knew a lot about Tobin Anderson before two weeks ago, um, you know, but spent a lot of time obviously on the on the D2 level, also with FDU. Uh, did an incredible job, you know, over the last couple of weeks at FD, FDU. You know, uh, the good thing for him about Iona, I think we talked about this last week, is, you know, he doesn't need to build something new at Iona. He's just basically continuing what Tim Clues and then Rick Pitino kind of started and what guys before them have even started. You know, this is not a a rebuild job for Iona. Uh, They're going to lose some players for sure. But at the end of the day, you know, he's really just kind of keeping up that culture that's been in place at Iona for decades now. So, uh, you know, I, I think that while maybe there are some questions about, you know, is this guy legit as a, as a head coach? Um, you know, it's, it's not the toughest job to step into on a mid-major level. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I know Tobin said in the press conference, I believe this, that like he would have been the choice for Iona if Pantino did not want to go there in 2020. They had to replace Clues because you look at that hire and it's very similar profile. One that they have with Clues, like highly successful D2 coach, a lot of winning comes to D1 when one year fairly Dixon gets in the tournament, has them winning two games in the tournament, including a 16 over one upset here. And like, for him, you know, Dalton with the family too far, going from like mm-hmm. fairly going from like New Jersey, New Rochelle's not a big move. Like it's like, mm-hmm. it's, it's good stuff for him too. Yeah, yeah, and it's definitely a step up for him. You know, after you obviously in the NEC, which is probably one of the you know lower conferences in America, uh, going to the MAC, but especially going to Iona, which is a program that you know I, I know Rick Pitino, outstanding, does kind of breed these outstanding coaches. So. Uh, you know, hopefully for him, I, I'm sure that he's thinking in the next five to ten years he could be at a high major drop. So it's a good step up for him as well. Absolutely. The other one was the big tug of war. But Notre Dame ends up winning again. Michael Shrewsbury from Penn State. Like, what do you think about that move? Yeah, uh, for him, you know, I, I'm not sure how big of a step up it is. I mean, I'm sure you know Notre Dame obviously is is bigger into basketball than Penn State is. Um, but you know, going back home to Indiana where he spent so much of, of his career. Uh, it's a good it's a good move for him. I think it sucks for Penn State, though, you know, a team that he he took to heights that they had never been before, of course, uh, you know, winning an NCAA tournament game, making it to the second round, nearly making it to the Sweet 16. Uh, they had a shot against Texas there in that second round game. So it's a big blow for Penn State. 
uh, for sure. But, you know, for Notre Dame, I, I think it's an upgrade over the last couple of years of Mike Bray. Shrewsbury is a phenomenal coach. Uh, I think he's going to do a great job there. And, uh, yeah, you know, you look at how they kind of ended the Mike Bray era. It wasn't very strong. But I think Shrewsbury has shown he can build it up relatively quickly. And within a couple of years, we should see them back in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I think it's an exciting hire for Notre Dame, too. And I do think one name I'll throw out here for about the coaching carousel here is Dusty May, obviously, to be the hot name because he took Florida Atlantic to Final Four. I mean, their facilities are, like, some of the smallest in the country. Like, they don't – like, I look – I've seen the picture online that their gym compared to where they're playing the Final Four is, like, absolutely yeah. ridiculous <laughs> here. Like, if there's a time for him to jump, it would probably be now. So you do have some big-name programs still looking for coaches. Like, Texas Tech is still out there. Penn State, who is not by a replacement for uh, Micah Shrewsbury yet here. Temple mm-hmm. is play, like – if you were him, they didn't job in this pool. You likely would you stay at Florida Atlantic because they go to the AAC next year and wait for another spot. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think that's not a terrible idea to kind of, you know, give it another year maybe. I believe that they can bring, like, almost everyone back. You look at the job that he did this year, you know, that's going to carry some weight regardless of what happens next year. Uh, you know, if they do bring a good amount of their guys back, you would assume they'd still be at least an NCAA tournament team next year, and then he can kind of maybe make that jump. Because like you mentioned, the, the high major jobs right now are not all that appealing. There are a couple of them out there. Um, but, you know, if, if he kind of want, wants to wait for maybe that real big opportunity, uh, it might not be a bad idea for him to stick around, like you said, make that jump. Uh, to a new conference, and then hopefully, uh, you know, maybe revisit this at this time next year. Yeah, because the reason I threw, like, as I, I first I thought, you know, like a program like Temple would be interesting because they are a proud basketball program. They have more resources yeah. than Florida Atlantic. Mm-hmm. But, like, you know, it's the same league he's going to be in next year. He's have to deal with his own program at least, like, once during the season, which is not great in his regard. Mm-hmm. But, like, you feel like, maybe, you know, like, you want to get, like, in the door in, like, the ACC somewhere maybe next year or, like, get, like, closer to, like, May you know, wait out if Mike Woods doesn't work out in Indiana. You're the guy. Exactly. There. I yeah, I have a feeling that there's going to be a lot of of or a lot more high major jobs opening uh, next year than we saw this year. It seems like these things are kind of cyclical in terms of you know some years there's there's so many of them and then some years there's hardly any. Uh, this year seemed like there was really hardly any of these you know big uh, high major jobs opening up. So I think if he if he waited out a year, uh, stuck around there for a year, had another decent year. Uh, then I think he could really go anywhere that he wants in the country. Yeah, and last one, I just thought of here. Rodney Terry gets the interim tag removed to Texas. Well, long overdue. We did a great job there this year. Yeah, yeah, not surprising at all. Uh, I'm not really sure what took them so long. I guess they just wanted to wait. I, I didn't actually look into it. Uh, I just saw the headline, but I'm guessing that they just didn't want to do it uh, midway through the season. But what a job by him. You know, that, that program had, obviously, a lot of turmoil to deal with. Uh, with the Chris Beard situation, they had to get rid of him. And then Rodney Terry takes over, and they really didn't miss a beat. Uh, they almost got better with or They did get better uh, under him. He leads them to Elite Eight and had them really a couple plays away from the Final Four, as we'll get into. So phenomenal job by him and, um, you know, certainly well-deserved. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's start going some of these regions here real quick, catch up what's going on here. I mean, we'll start in the East. The game that the tournament really kicked off the Sweet 16 round, Michigan State, K-State, the legend Marquise Noel here, like, any big takeaways from that game you want to go back over? Yeah, just, I, I mean, you know, you often don't really remember the performances of guys that that lose. Uh, you know, it's it, at least it's hard to remember a performance from a guy that that loses. But I think the story from the East Regional, uh, you know, the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight at the Garden, it's Marquise Noel, you know, the hometown kid from Harlan. Harlem went to Bishop Lachlan, uh, went to St. Patrick's over in New Jersey, uh, 20 points and 19 assists in that first game. Just an electric game for him from him in that first round. And then obviously the second round as well with a, oh, with a 30 point performance uh, in the loss. But 
Yeah, just I, I mean, every time that he touched the ball in both of those games, it felt like something cool was going to happen. It might be something bad. You know, he, he might be taking a a 40 footer from the logo, uh, you know, in the in the final minute of regulation. But it always just felt like something cool was going to happen when he had the ball. And uh, yeah, just that typical New York City, you know, point guard, uh, very, very shifty, you know, very, very uh, tough to guard can kind of move around a lot. Uh, really, really like his game, and he, he was just—he was the story of that game and the story of I think the entire East Regional. Uh, what a performance from him! And that was, like you said, that was the game of the tournament. Goes to overtime, first overtime game of the tournament, and uh, K State gets by. And and you know, at that point, I thought they were destined for the Final Four, but unfortunately, it did not work out for them. Yeah, like I, it's funny because I was watching my friend of mine. We always like joke about like, oh, we can find the moments they're gonna be in the March in the one shiny moment video here. That 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 alley oop when he pretends to argue with Jerome Tang and throws the Keontae George that is unquestionably going to be in the in the one time on video. Yeah, I mean, how cool is that? I, I it seems like it was intentional to do that. Uh, yeah, just I I mean, you love moments like that, and like like you mentioned, that'll absolutely be in the video. Uh, just you know, again, just a a, a kind of New York City type like playground play, right? Like pretending to to argue with the coach, and then someone cuts back door for the alley oop, he catches the defense falling asleep. Uh, just an awesome play, and yeah, one that we'll remember. You know, even in a losing effort, I think that says a lot about him. That even in a losing effort, you know, he had a couple of plays and he had some moments that we're going to remember. I think for you know twenty years. Hey, remember that that no look uh, argument alley oop that Marquise Noel did in the uh, in the Sweet Sixteen. It's just it's it speaks a lot to the to the tournament that he had. Yeah. Also, as a Michigan State fan, I'll also point out here, like I was very upset with how they ended that ended that overtime because they had a chance to you know. We're down three, 12 seconds left here. I'm sitting here watching at home, like, oh, you know, go to the basket quick, too. Casey had a great free throw shooting team extend the game. They were dribbling around the perimeter trying to get a three. They couldn't even get one off. They're like, I was very frustrating to watch. Yeah, it's just, it's, it stinks when these teams seem like they can't even get a shot off, you know, or, you know, just don't know, really know, know what they're doing in the final uh, couple of seconds. And that was, that was no difference. Yeah, just a, just a rough ending for Michigan State. Obviously, they had the nice upset of Marquette in the, uh, in the second round, but, yeah, rough ending for them. And again, we we kind of said it felt like the winner of that game uh, probably was going to win the regional. Obviously, that didn't happen. But in the moment, you were saying, "Man, that's a missed opportunity for Michigan State." Yeah, and they end up losing. Casey ends up losing to Florida Atlantic here, which wins the slugfest of Tennessee, and then comes back here and wins a shootout with K State to get to the Final Four. Here, what do you think about what we saw from the Owls? Yeah, I was actually at this game at the Garden on uh, on Saturday night, and yeah, just I mean, a game where. It felt like all the the crowd was very very heavy. Uh, Kansas State, uh, Florida Atlantic obviously has the lead at halftime. Kansas State kind of uh, pushes a, pushes ahead in the second half. It seemed like at that point the game was going to be over and Kansas State was going to maybe not win comfortably, but but certainly get the win. And Florida Atlantic, man, they just they play team basketball. They move the ball so well. Uh, being being there in person, that's the one thing I noticed. They really, really moved the ball. Uh, 17 assists on 26 made field goals in that game for FAU. You look at their balance scoring; they had four guys in double figures. They just they they really play as a team, uh, you know. And and I think they kind of said like we're going to make Marquise Noel beat us on his own. He had the 30 points. Obviously, Keontae Johnson uh, Johnson was in the foul trouble for a good portion of that game. That really hurt Kansas State. Uh, if I'm Kansas State too. I'm really upset that I didn't get a shot off at the end there. Uh, I know that, you know, Marquise Noel, uh, you know, is, is known for his passing. He had 12 assists in this game as well. But, man, I, I think Noel's got to take that shot on the last possession uh, for the tie. Uh, he's been he's been your guy all tournament, all season. 
Uh, he had the 30-point performance. I would have wanted him to take that shot no matter what. I don't even care if he's double-covered. I want him taking that shot, uh, but he didn't do it. He passed it up to uh, Masood. But, yeah, uh, unreal game. What You can't say enough about FAU, right? I mean, they're an underdog, but are they really an underdog? Are they really a Cinderella? They were a top 25 team for a good portion of the year. They only lost three games all season long. Uh, obviously, they get you know some help with the 16-seed FDU knocking off Purdue, so that makes their run a little bit easier. But now they're in Houston, and they got as good a shot as anyone to win to win the, the, to win the national title. I mean, they've won 35 games. You can't call this Cinderella. Mm-hmm. They won 35 games. It's a really good basketball team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like that's the thing. I mean, I think to a casual observer, you're looking at this team and you're like, wow, FAU's in it. You know, that's that's a Cinderella for sure. But yeah, they, they've been a top 25 team all season long. And they, like you said, they won 35 games. They only lost three. Uh, they, they've, you know, they've ran through basically everyone that they've played. So on the outset, yeah, they look like a Cinderella, but they're not They're They deserve to be here. And they probably were a little bit un- underseated as a nine seed. Yeah, the, the seeding as a whole this year was very off. I feel like that led to a lot of the chaos we saw, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think we mentioned that last week too. Uh, this the seeding, you know. I think that's why we we're seeing a final four with no uh, top three seeds for the first time ever. It just it makes sense, you know. The 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 seeding for sure. I think they they could have done a lot better job. FAU was a perfect example of that. They probably should have been at least a seed or two, uh, maybe two seed lines higher than they were. Yeah, I mean, you can make an argument they'd be in a six line with the, with, the, with, the, uh, with, the, with the net and the quad one. There's no reason why they're not. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. All right, let's go to the West region here because obviously we'll we'll, talk, we'll get to UConn in a second here, but I gotta give a shout mm-hmm. also to the other great game of Thursday night here. U UCLA Gonzaga. This game went back and forth on that. UCLA builds the huge lead, halftime lead. Mm-hmm. Gonzaga builds the huge lead second half. They almost blow it late. Julian Strother hits the three late. This game was awesome. Yeah, that was an NCAA tournament game, right? One team getting up big. Uh, UCLA up thirteen at the half. Gonzaga comes roaring back, holds UCLA without a field goal for eleven minutes. And then just it all falls and then nearly all falls apart for them uh, in the final couple of minutes and really in the final minute. I think for UCLA, uh, I think that their lack of depth and those injuries, they just finally caught up for them. You know, you look at UCLA's box score. They had all, all five of their starters play 32 or more minutes. Uh, they only they only had, I think, 19 minutes off the bench. They just they didn't have enough. Uh, they, you know, they didn't have enough depth in this game because of the injuries that they had, they had suffered, uh, or, you know, earlier in the season, they just ran out of gas. It's really that simple. Uh, they were a really good team. I honestly think that this team, uh, would have been final four bound probably if they were at full strength and probably could have won the national title if they were at full strength, but yeah, crazy, crazy comeback in the final minute or so, uh, crazy shot by, uh, Julian Strother for the, for the, uh, lead for Gonzaga. And then UCLA draws up an awesome play to try to tie the game uh, with the game winner with the half court pass and the quick pass off to the side, got a really good look at it to tie it up. And it just, uh, just misses. But uh, really, again, that's just a, an awesome NCAA tournament game, a game of runs where, you know, early it looked like a UCLA blowout. Then it looks like a Gonzaga blowout. Then we get the crazy comeback in the final minute, the crazy logo three uh, for the lead for Gonzaga. And then UCLA shot just misses the buzzer. Just everything that you're looking for in an NCAA tournament game. Yeah, I, I do feel like if at, at UCLA didn't have Adam Bona that game because he got hurt right before, and then they, they told him like about 20 minutes for the kick tip off, he was not going to play. I think if they had Bona, they win that basketball game. Yeah, yeah, really even them. even even just having him would have been such a difference maker. Uh, I mean, when, you know, in an NCAA tournament game, you know, when you're when you're playing top level competition and you can really only go five deep and you really can't even go onto your bench very much. It just puts you in an impossible situation, especially trying to play a team like Gonzaga, which isn't crazy deep, 
But, uh, yeah, it's just too much for UCLA to overcome the injuries this season. And uh, it's a bummer because, like I said, I think that they were probably – they were, they were I think, one of the best teams in the country this year. Yeah, I also got to give our props to UConn here. I mean, obviously they dominate Arkansas. They yeah. blow through mm-hmm. Gonzaga, which we said the guard plays an issue for Gonzaga, and it was here. Though was this was a bit of a bummer also that Drew Timmy picked up his fourth foul very quickly in the second half and to sit for a long time and, be, and really put on UConn to pull away. Yeah, yeah, and it was kind of a dumb foul by Timmy too. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, uh, picking up that foul so early and that that I think that was the death blow for Gonzaga because I think they were they were still within at least striking distance in that game at that point, and then U- UConn just blew them out. But man, you look at UConn right now and the four games that they've played in the NCAA tournament, and you just say who's beating them <laughs> at this point? They look like uh, by far the best team in America right now. They look like. Early season UConn, which didn't lose a non-conference game, and they still haven't lost a game outside of the Big East. And you know, it, it just kind of looks like, man, this team looks so good in December, in you know, November, December, and early January. And then they kind of they kind of hit that snag in you know January into February. But you could have seen this coming, you know, because this team looked like a Final Four team early in the season with the way that they played. Uh, early in the season, you know, in the non-conference. And, you know, they went through the rigors of a Big East schedule. They kind of fell off the national radar a little bit. They get a four seed. Maybe we're a little bit underseeded, but we're probably properly seeded, actually. And then, you know, they go on this run where really they haven't even been challenged yet. They've run through Arkansas, which I thought was going to be a game for them. Um, I did actually think that they were going to kind of have have their way with Gonzaga because I just don't think that Gonzaga uh, matched up well with them, especially with Drew Timmy getting into foul trouble in that game. But, yeah, at this point, man, UConn, they just they look like a team that is going to be so hard to beat. Um, they they're playing the best basketball out of any of these four teams still left, and I, I'm just not sure if anyone could beat them at this point. Yeah, I think the thing that bothered me with the UConn seeding here is obviously they deserve where they be the final four. They've been the best team in this tournament by far across all their mm-hmm. rounds. They haven't lost. They haven't won a game by less than 15 points, which is absurd. Yeah, in March Madness mm-hmm. competition here, but like the fact this team was a four seed. I mean when. Ken Palm tell like Ken Palm had them in the top four and they were number eight yeah. net. Like to me, that's a problem. I mean, like think uh-huh. about like poor Iona here, where like they're a 13 <laughs> seed and they're and they're getting put on the same seed line as Virginia, Tennessee, and Indiana. Three teams are nowhere near talent wise. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah, and for Iona, I think they kind of fall victim to uh, you know, maybe the TV executives yeah. getting their hands in the brackets a little bit. You know, trying to schedule those matchups. Of course, you know, you want the UConn Iona. That's that's more sexy than maybe, you know, Iona, Virginia or Iona, Indiana. So, yeah, Iona falls victim to that. Uh, yeah, but UConn was this team all year long. You know, like, like I said, they just went through the Big East schedule, but they are so deep. They have so many guys that can come off the bench and hit a shot. And I think that's what's really special about this UConn team is they don't need anyone to kind of play out of their minds to win games. Like, they just need everyone to play their role. You know, Adon- Adama Sonogo, uh, Klingon, Hawkins, like, if these guys just play their role, they win games. And, and and we've seen that throughout this tournament, like you said, beating every team by 15-plus. Everyone on this team seems like they have a defined role. They have so much depth, and they have so many guys that can hit a shot that they don't need anyone to go off and score 35 points or have this, you know, crazy shooting performance to win a game because they have so much depth and they have so many guys that have these defined roles. Uh, that's I think that's what's special about this UConn team, which is something that they did not have last year. They really didn't have the year before that under Danny Hurley with so many shooters coming in uh, that can hit so many guys that can come in and hit a shot off the bench. Right, so let's go to the South region now for a little bit here because, obviously, the first big shock on Friday night, Alabama losing to Miami here. And the thing that mm. sort of struck me here is that, like, Miami's, like, guard play from Wong and Pack like, really, like, was bothering Alabama. And Alabama does not look like they have the shot makers, which is surprising because they're a team that is pretty good offensively. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and talking about Miami, like you mentioned, the guard play. When you have uh, guards like Miller, Wong, and Pack, like those guys, guard play wins in March. I think that we, we've seen that over the years. And when you have guys like that, I mean, that game, Pack scores 26, Wong 20, Miller 13, and then Miller obviously went, went crazy in the last game. Uh, you know, when you have three guards like that can, that can uh, that can play that well, uh, you're going to be really tough to beat. Miami scores 89 points, or, or yeah, Miami scores 89 points in that game, and um, yeah, just a just a really really uh, impressive win for them. And actually, uh, that, was the, that was the wrong reason. That was the I, I, that was, that's the Midwest. So I'll mention that with Houston. Oh my bad. Yeah, I, I yeah. So yeah, Miami over Houston. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like I said, when you have the guard play like Miami has, it's uh, really impressive. And yeah, like, like we said, Houston uh, falling in that game. I thought that this was it for Houston. Like I said, I thought that this was their their homecoming uh, in, in in this tournament. I thought that they were going to finally put it all together for Kelvin Sampson. They won the 33 games all season long. Uh, they, they looked like, the I thought, the best team in the country all season long. They had a couple of injury scares, of course. But I, I just I thought that this was their chance. And you look at Houston and you're like, man, if not now, when? You know, If it wasn't going to be this year when you were kind of not head and shoulders, but you were one of the best two or three teams all season long, and you still don't even make it to an elite eight. I know that they did make the final four uh, two years ago, but you know you still this year don't even make it to to an elite eight. Uh, that's got to be a bummer for them. And and like I said, you just kind of wonder like if not now when uh, because that was a game against Miami that you really should have won. And Houston's a very good defensive team too. It was shocking to see Miami do that well against them. And you feel like also that the Marcus Sasser and you really like destroy that team. They were never the same after he got hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I I believe that was a season high in points allowed yeah. uh, for Houston, giving up the eighty nine points. Miami shoots for I think forty yeah forty four percent from a three point range in that game. Yeah, they just couldn't stop him. I, I feel like they could not get a stop down the stretch uh, in that game, and they gave up forty seven points in the second half. Uh, yeah, just it's just a bummer for Houston. Like I mentioned, a team that felt like they were destined to go to the final four, and they don't even make it to the to the regional final. Yeah, you wonder if the pressure got them a little bit because I know there were a lot of people asking, oh, you know, like Final Four in mm-hmm. Houston, like twenty minutes on campus, like what's going on? I know Kelvin Sam said, hey, like, like. You have to win every game in front of you. Like it's this adds more pressure to this team. I feel like maybe they were feeling the heat. Like you know, we got to get home in front of our fans, and they put too mm-hmm. much on this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and also you know it's a it's a tired argument not to to beat a dead horse here, but you know playing in that conference as well. How much are you really getting tested uh, in in the AAC? You know, you're really not facing top level NCAA tournament competition every night. You know, we kind of say the same thing with with Gonzaga every year, like it's probably hard to kind of turn it off, not turn it off, but to turn it back on again after two or three months of playing, you know, the, the UCFs and the Tulsa's and the two lanes, like, you know, it's probably kind of tough for them. And obviously they're making the move to the big 12. I'm sure that'll help them because, you know, you, you just, you wonder if it's hard for a team to play that level of competition for so long. And then to go into an NCAA tournament environment, uh, even as a one seed, and face this high level competition. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a question worth asking. I think, even though it is something that gets brought up, it feels like every year with Gonzaga and not for nothing, I would take the WCC over the a over the American in terms of competition level, because their programs at least have been trying to improve keep up with Gonzaga. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. You know, if you look at the last five years or so, the WCC has been, been a better conference for sure than the American. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that Houston they're, they're probably happy to be getting away from that now and to be playing in a conference like the big 12, that's going to, going to prioritize basketball and that they will be playing NCAA tournament level basketball really every night now. So it's, it's a big difference for them and I'm sure it'll, it'll end up helping them in the long run. Yeah, obviously Miami, Texas, the last game of the weekend here. Miami prevails like late in this game. Like, what do you think about what we saw in that game? Yeah, uh, in that one, I mean, 
again, it's just a game that it feels like Texas, they, they lose these type of games and it stinks because I, I, again, I thought that this was a year for Texas that could have been their year. It felt like, you know, final four, obviously in their state, uh, they could be going home, but they had that big lead. They had a lead at halftime, despite Miami, I think shooting 64% in the first half and Texas still has the eight point lead in halftime. I think it got up to 12 or 13 and it just, it felt like Texas in that game, never threw the real knockout punch. Like they got it to, to what, 12 or 13. They never got it up to, you know, 18, 20 and really put it away. Instead, it went back down to six and now we got a game. And at the end of the day, it just felt like Miami executed better than Texas down the stretch. Uh, Texas, it felt like kind of went to ISO a little bit too much uh, in the last couple of minutes, whereas Miami kind of moved the ball a little bit better. It felt like and kind of played their game a little bit better. But like I said, when you have the guards that Miami has, you know, Wong and, and Miller, who I don't think missed a shot in that game against Texas, he was phenomenal. He did not. Uh, seven or seven. Yeah, when you. <laughs> The and then yeah, and then and then perfect from the free throw line as well. Yeah, when you have a guy like that, um, Wong and Pack, like when you get guard play like that, it's just so hard to 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 to. It's so easy to win games in March because March guard play wins in March. So it's a bummer for Texas, like we said, Ronnie Terry did an awesome year there, uh, in in his in really picking up in an interim role. Uh, but again, a, a path that was that felt like it wasn't that tough for Texas, and uh, unfortunately they can't get to the final four. It's funny, you know, we said. That the, that uh, the Midwest was kind of headed for a, uh, I think I said at least a Texas Texas Houston uh, crash course, and of course it's Miami that gets out of that region. So just very very fitting that uh, that's that that's how this March Madness has been going for sure. And it beats both of them in the process. Yeah, exactly. Like Miami goes through both of them in the process. It just it, it just it's again that's just how this year's been going uh, in in March. Very very. You can't predict it ever. I mean, Miami too, explosive offense all tournament, fifty nine percent from the floor against Texas, which is like ridiculous. Texas is a very good defensive team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that first half, like you know, they shot I think sixty four percent in the first half, and you were like, all right, and they're still down. Uh, they were still down, I think eight at half, and you were saying like, man, what else can Miami do here? They they had a pretty good half, and then they score fifty one in in the second half. They just go off. I mean, scoring eighty eighty five plus against. Texas and Houston, who are two of the better defensive teams in the country, that says a lot about Miami. That says a lot about their game plan. That says a lot about, like I said, the playmakers that they have. Um, just a just a really really strong effort by Miami. They deserve to be here. You know, they beat the two best teams in their region unquestionably. Uh, you know, in two out of three nights. So really impressive win for them. Impressive job by Jim Laranega, and they go to their first Final Four in program history. So really really, uh, I mean, you can't say enough about Miami and the job that they did uh, this weekend. Absolutely. Go back now. Go this out right here. Talk about Alabama goes down here, and this is a game mm-hmm. where they got beaten up by San Diego State. And I give credit to the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. It's a conference. They come from a conference that's historically underachieved in March. No way mm-hmm. won a game in the Sweet Sixteen before they did. Now they're the first yeah. West team in the Final Four year. But like, I was surprised that Alabama, like as, as much as a bit been a bully team all year, they got like pushed around this game. They really had no response. Yeah, I mean Alabama. That was the exact type of game. I know it ended up. Uh, in the in the seventies and sixties, but that's the exact type of game that San Diego State wants to play. Uh, twenty eight twenty three at the half. Like when you when you look at that score and and, and you see twenty eight twenty three at halftime, you're like, you know, this is this is game is going at the pace and at the tempo that San Diego State wants to play. They want to make it a rock fight. They want to slow things down. They want to limit the amount of possessions. They want to play physical, like we said. And uh, Alabama just could not keep up. They really did not have another punch. Uh, Alabama goes three of twenty seven 
from three-point range in this game. Uh, they only shoot 32% from the floor. Brandon Miller, just a, a horrendous tournament for him. One of 10 from three-point range, three of 19 overall. Uh, had nine points, but, you know, a really, really rough tournament for him. A guy who could have, you know, really, I mean, we already knew why he was a national story, but could have made, him a na- made himself a national story for on-the-court reasons as well. And it just did not work out for, for them. Um, you know, I, I thought that, like we said last week, Alabama was going to roll through this region. But San Diego State, again, they played their game. They made Alabama play their style. They made Alabama slow it down and try to, you know, create an half court. And Alabama just could not hit a shot, especially in that second half down the stretch. It just kept, you know, three-pointer, 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 and it was just miss after miss after miss. Uh, three of 27, you're never going to win a game, let alone an NCAA tournament game. Yeah, basically wanted Alabama too. You know, obviously the situation Brandon Miller, where he's the one who brings the gun to the uh, homicide scene, where former uh, former like, teammate Darius Miles ends up like mm-hmm. shooting and killing a woman here, and we found out that basically Alabama covers it up for a long time, and they don't impress on. He said like wrong place, wrong time, and they don't discipline him because they're they're trying to win, which gets to a lot of criticism here. You wonder here, like, did this did they did this cost them their season? Because this team was cruising mm-hmm. before they were never really the same after that really came out. Because it makes you wonder. No. Like, that like this became such a big distraction for them that like they just couldn't get themselves back and in what into the groove they had. Yeah, I mean, you look at the results. You know, they they were playing with team, they were playing close games with teams that they should not have been playing close games with. They lost a couple of games down the stretch. I know that they put it together in the SEC tournament, but they, I, I didn't, I didn't think that they were a, I, I had them going pretty far, but it just didn't feel like they were the Alabama of old. Uh, you know, from the Alabama that we had kind of seen before this. And like you said, I mean, you know, they're college kids, and at the end of the day, that's that's something that it's going to affect you. And how could it not? You know, that's a cloud hanging over your program, your school, really. And it's, you know, directly related to a member of your team. Um, he had a brutal NCAA tournament, like we said. So I, it's just, it's, it, I think it was an unfortunate situation, um, uh, you know, and, and it just, it's, it's, it's really derailed their season. Obviously, the loss of life is way more important than that, but it, it really derails their season, uh, you know, and a season that could have been really special for them. The thing is, like, like, sort of like, mind, is mind boggling with the whole situation, just the Miller front. I'm not even touching the Miles murder thing. That's a completely separate thing. And obviously, you said loss of life is far more important than anything we're talking about with this situation. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. this would have been so easy for NATO to say, you know what? Like, once he finds out, say, okay, Brandon, you're sitting out for two games. We're calling it violation of team rules. I'm like, you don't, you don't have to tell exactly why. And then, you know, you come back, he's been dealt with. And that, and then mm-hmm. like, it, it never gets out that way. It's supposed to, like, the cover up is worse than the crime in most cases. And this is sort of what happened here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just, the handling of this from the Alabama perspective, like you said, the NATO's wrong place, wrong time, uh, you know, like trying to cover it up, not really feeling very remorseful for it. It felt like, you know, throughout the entire time, it kind of felt like to them, it was like almost a distraction, which that shouldn't be the case. Uh, yeah. It's just, uh, they could not have handled it any worse. And I think that made the intensity and the, you know, the, the focus go even more on them, like you said, than if they would have maybe handled it internally at the start when they found out about it. Uh, instead, it turns into something way bigger, and it, it really ends up derailing your season. Yeah, it absolutely did here. The other game here is that reason around here. Princeton was fun. They, they gave it a half, but then great <laughs> was just too much for them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, you know, fun story for the 15 seed making it all the way to the Sweet 16. But yeah, Creighton, they get a really nice draw, obviously getting to play a 15 seed, uh, getting three days or uh, four days to prepare for them. Uh, and it works out well for them. But man, again, a missed opportunity for Creighton at the end of that game, uh, at the end of the San Diego State game, that foul at the end on Nemhard. I, I think it's a foul, but when you look at how that game had been called 
it was such a physical game. I mean, San Diego State wasn't even in the bonus uh, until the final, what, 30 seconds of that game uh, in, in the second half. So to call that foul on Nemhard there, I get it's a foul, but I, I think at in the context in the context of the game, probably would have been better off not calling it and seeing these two teams play overtime. But Creighton had a couple of moments, a couple of what if moments. Uh, I didn't get that you. I know that they had a foul to give in the final thirty seconds, but they they fouled with with the shot clock. It seemed like kind of winding down, and then guarantee that San Diego State's going to get the last shot off. That was the one thing that I didn't get. I know that you know conventional school of thought says if you have the foul to give, there you do it. But you kind of guarantee that San Diego State was going to get the last shot. Uh, you know, if they don't foul there, maybe you know the, the 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 same thing plays out. But there's six seven seconds left on the clock where you can actually draw up a play instead of one or two seconds. So that didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, and then the inbounds pass with with one or two seconds left. Uh, I never get when teams do this full court, uh, you know, football pass all the way down, try to throw it ninety feet, try to catch it in a crowd, and then throw it up at the buzzer. Throw the ball, inbound the ball 20 feet, get a half-court shot off. You know, at least that has a, a decent percent chance. I mean, we see guys hit half-court shots, it feels like, all the time now, uh, you know, even in the college game. Take a half-court shot there. Don't try to throw it the length of the floor with one second, have a guy catch it, and maybe even tip it in at the buzzer. It's just not going to work out. Uh, that's that's a big pet peeve of mine. I really wanted to get to that because I never get when t- why teams do that in the closing seconds. Throw the ball short, do what UCLA did. Throw the ball to midcourt and try to get like a half court shot off at the buzzer. Yeah, not don't do that. Don't do that full court pass. I hate that. Yeah, this, you're you're not Grant Hill, Christian Leitner here. This is not happening. Like I said, one it's, one in a million shots. It, it's worked like one time. I yeah. think it's worked one time in the history of college basketball. But these teams see that and they're like, oh, it's got to work, right? We'll throw it. We'll throw it to the foul line. The guy will catch and hit a turnaround jumper. It's never going to work. It never. That's the only time I've ever seen it work. But for some reason, these teams keep doing it instead of just taking the half court shot. It's a much better percentage wise than trying to complete that pass. Yeah, and I will say in terms of the foul thing there at the end of the game, it was a foul. Mm-hmm. It does remind you a lot of what happened at the end of the Super Bowl with James Bradbury. Or yeah, the Colts mm-hmm. like the like it's a foul. James Bradbury made it a foul, and like those things like you have to call it because like you can only imagine like the outrage would have been the other way too. Like if it doesn't get called, and then Creighton ends up yeah. winning the game. Like like it's mm-hmm. one thing like you could see like he, he literally. Like held his hip in the middle of the shot motion. Like you have to call that foul like every time. That's unfortunate. But. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he. I mean, it, it's a foul. Like, don't get me wrong, it's a foul. I just, I'm not sure if if I would decide a game on a foul like that on one that like to the naked eye, you're like, ah, eh, I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah, no, he ended up on the floor, but yeah, it's it's a tough way for Creighton to go out. And like I said, when you have that many, you know, what ifs in in the final 30 seconds of a game, it's a real bummer for you because especially trying to make your first Final Four, like I said, you got an awesome draw. Uh, to go to the final four and uh, you know, you just come up a little bit short. They can return almost everyone on that crane team. They were, you know, and they were basically what a preseason top 10 team this year. And uh, they, they really finally hit their stride here down the stretch. But uh, I, I think they have a good shot of making it back this year, but they're never going to get an easier draw than a 15 seed and a five seed uh, in the, in the, you know, sweet 16, the elite eight. So really, really a missed opportunity for them. Yeah. I think the only question is if, if Baylor Shireman uses the COVID year or not, or if he comes back, comes back here, but mm-hmm. like, like that team, if they bring everybody back here, they're going to be able to put top three preseason poll next year. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you look at the Big East. I mean, you know, UConn could be coming off a national title. Uh, Marquette could have, could bring up bring back a lot of te- uh, a lot of players, and then you got Creighton bringing back or could bring back almost everyone to the the Big East. Could end up having like three teams in the top ten or three teams in the top fifteen next year. So really looking forward to that. Now you, met, now you mentioned Xavier here, who also was, should be getting mm-hmm. Zach Fremantle back. Yeah, yeah, Xavier, and I mean 
you would assume Villanova puts it together as well. My school with Rick Pitino, who knows what they're going to do. The Big East is 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 they're ne- they're never going to be the old Big East, but you're seeing that the Big East is is becoming again a power is a power conference once again, and is up there. I think you know as maybe the fourth or third best best conference in America year after year. Absolutely. Let's get to the final four. Let's take a look at each of these games here. The undercard and the one that we knew <laughs> immediately was going to be six o'clock was the. Florida Atlantic San Diego State game here. I think this one is going to be a lot of fun here. Like, I feel like the key for this game for me is that Florida Atlantic had to play a game like the San Diego State likes to play when they played Tennessee. They found a way to squeak that game out. I think that's going to help them out a lot in this matchup. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. I mean, because, you know, San Diego State's going to want to slow it down. Like we said, they're going to want to play the type of game that they played against Alabama and against Creighton. They're going to want to play a game in the 50s or 60s. They're comfortable doing that. And, uh, you know, the question is, can FAU play that style? Can FAU win kind of a rock fight type game? Uh, doing that against Tennessee, a very, very physical Tennessee team, probably did help them, you know. But, I, again, we say this FAU team, they're not a Cinderella. They are a team that has been good all season long. And, uh, you know, I think that they would be my pick right now in this game to win. Uh, you know, given how my picks have gone this tournament, that probably spells <laughs> doom for them. But uh, but I, I think FAU, like you said, having that, that experience – and I think just being the better, better all around team, uh, I think that they, they are as of right now my my favorite to win that game. Yeah, I would agree with that here. And I do think the night game, UConn, I feel like whoever wins that game is probably the favorite in the title game on Monday night. Like the thing that yeah. I feel like UConn I'm seeing early lines are favored by five and a half points. I think that game has chance to be close because again, Miami elite guard play. I think they had the ability to go up and down the floor and make UConn run, which I don't think UConn wants to do as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be a, a fantastic game, I think. Two teams that can really score the ball. We just touched on Miami scoring 85-plus points in two straight games against two uh, really solid defensive teams. I honestly thought that UConn and Gonzaga was going to be a little bit of a track meet, but obviously Gonzaga didn't hold up their end of the bargain. UConn can score with anyone. Uh, you know, the guard play of Miami versus the depth of UConn going to be really, really fun to watch because UConn can keep bringing those guys, those guards in, especially off the bench. You know, how are they going to go up against, you know, Miller and Wong and Nigel Pack? Like, how are they going to go up against those guys? Uh, like you said, I, I do think that the winner of that team is, is probably going to be a pretty heavy favorite in the national title, especially if it's UConn. Uh, I, at this point, it's UConn's tournament to lose. As you said, five and a half point favorites in that one, but it wouldn't shock me if Miami knocked them off too, because we just saw Miami knock off two of the best, I would say, six or seven teams in the country. So, would not shock me at all if Miami pulls it out. Yeah, and the thing to be aware of my and the Miami end is that they really only have one real big in North Chad O'Meara, and like if that with all the buys they could throw down low, whether it's Sonogo, whether it's Klingon, mm-hmm. some of the, the some of the uh, guards can get down there and post up. Like that might be tough if he gets into that early foul trouble. Yeah, yeah, and, and we saw that against with Gonzaga, right? Uh, Drew Timmy getting into the foul trouble early, and Gonzaga just had no bigs to match up with those guys. That was going to be a problem for them, you know, with Timmy kind of being their only really strong big. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's kind of the same thing there. You know, if they can get O'Meara in foul trouble, obviously Texas did that uh, as, as well, and they, they, they couldn't uh, squeak it out. But, yeah, if they can get him in foul trouble, could be another UConn route uh, like we saw against Gonzaga. Yeah, and obviously we have this game coming up here, the Final Four. We have the thing is funny here is this remind this, this Final Four is compared a lot to the 2011 Final Four. We had no one yep. seeds, we had no two seeds here. We have a bunch mm-hmm. of unconventional picks here. It's a sort of the exact same setup here, where we have the two mid majors playing in one game, and then the two blue bloods, the two uh, high major programs in the other game. With UConn being the one brand, so yeah, uh-huh. like history gonna repeat itself. I feel like here, I feel like we're in it. I feel like we're destined for another UConn title. I know it, it does feel that way. And yeah, I, I had heard that actually. I think this is like the highest 
combined uh seed seed number since 2011 yeah. actually like you said the two the two mid majors on one side UConn and the other you know power conference team on the other side yeah i just it feels like all, all of these things just feel like it's coming back to to UConn winning it all uh again their first title since since 2014 and what their their fifth all time just yeah it feels like it's it's a UConn's to lose and uh as a big east fan as a st john's fan that's probably unfortunate because i want to see uconn win again but uh it looks like right now it's 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 going to be them yeah it'll be the fifth title for uconn since 1999 and you think about it that's mm-hmm. and for everybody who doesn't like i know they're all just like oh they're not a blue blood they're not like all these schools like kansas kentucky and indiana they would have won more titles in that span than those three schools combined if they win yeah yeah, I was actually just thinking that. Like, yeah, I mean, obviously they don't have the 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 you know fifty years of history that some of those schools have. But you look since the turn of the century or, or right before the turn of the century, like UConn is has is if they win this one has a resume that stacks up against anyone in the country. Like in terms of tournament appearances, but especially the national titles, uh, you know, Final Fours. Like they get there and they win, and and, and you know they're blue blood. Like it's it's very obvious they're not the traditional blue blood that's been good for fifty years, like I mentioned, but. They're, over the last 25 years, they, their resume stacks up with, with literally anyone in the country. Yeah, I feel like they're like in this category. I call it like the new blue bloods. Like it's like they're mm-hmm. in there. Villanova's in there. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. Gonzaga's mm-hmm. in that mix and they haven't won a title yet. Like that sort of crew. Like these teams have just really come out and become like dominant power the last like 25 years. Exactly. Yeah. Like aren't the traditional, you know, do Kansas, Kentucky, but yeah, have, have really, you know, have resumes that really match up with those programs over the past 25 years. Yeah. They're definitely in that class. Absolutely. Troy. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. People want to follow you on social media. Keep up with some of the stuff you're doing. How can they do that? Absolutely. Yeah. You can follow me on, on Twitter uh, at Troy Moriello. Uh, the last name is M A U R I E L L O. If you're a St. John's fan, of course, uh, I tweet a lot about the red storm, been doing a, the seeing red podcast about St. John's. So you're a St. John's fan, definitely check that out. Uh, getting back into it now with Rick Pitino as the head coach. So uh, de- definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see you again. I'm going, I haven't gotten a chance. You got to put out an episode yet about your thoughts on the Pitino situation. Are you waiting for more of these, the uh, roster to come together and whatnot? Yeah, we did last week, actually, right after the press conference. So we got one out there, and now just waiting for Rick to, to bring in some players, and then we'll uh, we'll get back on it as well. Yeah, yeah, I don't know fans I know are keeping an eye because I know like Walter Clayton Jr., the Max Walter player, entered the entered the portal and he he heard from Kansas and his <laughs> top final two right now are St. John's with Rick or Florida. That seems like where he's gonna head. So if he goes to St. John's, yeah. a hell of a point guard. Yeah, yeah. We're looking for, for Walter Clayton Jr. That's that's the one that we want. That's the one we wanna kick it off. Uh hopefully we find out this week and uh hopefully he stays he stays uh with Rick for for another year. So that's that's the first one. That's hopefully the first domino to fall for St. John's. Absolutely, Troy. Thanks for all the time, really appreciate it. Absolutely, Mike. Thank you. Show me the money. All right, show me the money. MLB edition here. We're getting ready to do our annual MLB over unders here on the podcast. Joining me once again to do this here, podcast legal correspondent Phil Fred is here. Phil, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Doing good. I'm very excited to do this again because nice, unlike last year, so I had to rush this because we had the lockout and then the condensing training. Now that we have a fully normal offseason, a lot to look forward to this year. Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. I think this is what, the fifth, fourth or fifth year in a row we're doing this? Something uh, like that. Uh, I can't remember. I guess the COVID year, we did it kind of with the, the abbreviated schedule. But otherwise, uh, yeah, it's, pre- it's pretty cool. Um, and Definitely a lot to look forward to in baseball this year. New rules, uh, 
has gotten a lot of publicity in spring training. I, I'm I'm on record. I love them. I love the new rules. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm very proud of the new rules. As a guy who has a 20-game plan with the Mets, I am very much appreciative of the pitch clock and getting this getting these games moving a little bit quicker. I like I like moving the game quicker. I like bat on ball, producing some base hits instead of ground outs into the shift. And I like seeing uh, the rules tinkered a little bit to let uh, base runners be base runners. Yeah, I talk about the top of the podcast, too. I mean, the local teams, both are projected to do pretty good this year. Both should be in the mix as World Series contenders here. I like what your team did with Volpe giving him a shot on opening day. My guy, he did not do that with both Beatty and Vientos and AAA. So, like, what I know you have to weigh in on that, the Volpe decision. I am so happy what the Yankees did. I'm a little shocked. Uh, over the past week or so, I thought it was possible because they let him stick around and they kept playing him. But, uh, the Yankees, you know, how many times over the years have they told us, oh, it's a competition and it's never really a competition. This is the kid won the job. He outright won the job and they're letting him play. I'm stunned. I thought at bare minimum we were going to hear about how he needed some time at AAA so that they can manipulate his service time. But they're doing the right thing. Now, now uh, I hope that the Yankees and uh, and the fans understand that kid's 21 years old. There might be some growing pains. and you got to stick with him. Uh, I, I don't want to see a situation where it's April 15 and he's batting 100 and they send him down. Uh, you stick stick with the kid through the ups and downs like like Houston did with Pena. Pena went through a terrible slump in the summer last year, and they just stuck with him. Yeah, that's for sure. It's nice to see like him get rewarded and have the opportunity you know, arise to get the regular job, whereas with the Mets, we're getting, you know, like, like milestones, about different defensive things, like games play at AAA. It's like, to me, I'm seeing with the roster construction here, like there are clear fits for like guys like Beatty and Vienna. The Mets didn't take it. I take that their words are going to be up at some point, but like in the division came down in tiebreaker, it does kind of bother you that like, you know, like you're leaving guys who can help you immediately, potentially in AAA for who knows how long. It's service time manipulation, 100%. Uh, now the Mets will tell you that, no, 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 it's not. Buck prefers veteran players. And I get that. I know Buck prefers veteran players, but I, I agree with you. You're the Mets are in a division with three teams, including them, who could realistically win that thing. And these early April games, they matter. They're going to matter down the stretch. Yeah, they will. Let's get now to the over-unders here. I ended up winning last year. I went five and one last year. I think you went three and three. So as the uh, as the runner-up here, I'll give you the choice here. We're going to use the odds once again from DraftKings Sportsbook. So would you like to have the first pick or the second and third pick? That, that will alternate. Uh, I'll take the second and third, and I'm surprised I went three and three. It felt like it was a lot worse than that. So Yeah, you had a couple of right weight ones rally to get you back to the 500 mark. Yeah. Uh, all right. I know you do well, though. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you can have the first pick. I'll go. I'll take second and third. All right. I'm going to start with an under here, a very, very easy under for me. How the Red Sox number is 78 and a half, it just make, makes absolutely no sense to me. I look at that at that team, what they did in the offseason. They let Bogarts go. They bring in Justin Turner, who is past his prime. They bring Corey Kluber for the rotation. They bring a couple of bullpen guys in. Great. They overpaid for a guy for Japan. Like, when I look at how the division has gotten, especially with the Orioles getting better now, like I don't see how this is a above 500 teams. You basically need the Red Sox to beat to win this win this bet. So I would take the under of the Red Sox first and run with, run to the bank with it. Yeah, I I like that. I mean, 
they did win 78 games last year, but I agree they're worse. I think that's a lot of Alex Cora love given and and just Red Sox. They're the Red Sox. So, but, but I, I don't think they're a very good team this year. Um, and you're right that if you look historically over the last 10 years or so, the Red Sox have had some real stinker years where they've, they've lost a hundred games and stuff like that. Uh, so I could see a, the Red Sox going, you know, 70 and 92 or something like that this year for sure. Yeah, I think that was a slam dunk for you. I think the one I felt very happy about here to get on the board from my side. So, Phil, where do you want to go with your first one? Uh, I'm going to go to the AL West. Um, I'm going to take Seattle in the over. The number that I'm seeing is 87 and a half. I think that's a fair number, but I like the Mariners. I think they're a good young team. Uh, they won 90 games last year. I don't see any reason why they can't improve on that. I think that division stinks other than Houston. Um, so I, I think Seattle can pick up some wins there. I understand that we're going to a more balanced schedule, but that even factors into their the Seattle advantage because the American League kind of stinks in general. So uh, so they're going to get some more games with the Tigers, more games with the Kansas City, teams like that. So uh, give me the over on the Mariners. Yeah, I add that as number two, my boy. I do love that pick. Plus, I mean, you get a full year of Luis Castillo with the Reds with the with the Mariners now. That will certainly big be a big help. Plus, you know, Teoscar Hernandez think playing for a contract would be nice. And as you mentioned, you're like you get some of these games out of the AL West, and still you're going into the into the interleague, and you get games against the NL Central weak teams. You get games against the Rockies thrown in there, extra games. Like they have a lot of opportunities to make up those wins. Yeah, uh, and and more games against teams in the American League too. Uh, so yes, I, I think there's definitely opportunities to make those up. All right, so you have one over on the board. Where are you going next? Uh, I'm sticking in that division, um, doing something that I think I should have done a long time ago when we've done this. Give me the, the Astros and the over. I, I mean, th that team is just – I don't care who's on the team. I don't care how much they lose every year. They are a juggernaut. I think they're going to win 100 games again. Their number is 95 and a half. I know it's a high number, but I see no reason why they can't get to 100. Give me the over on the Astros. Yeah, that was number one on my board. So, so you got my top two picks on the overside. So good job there with the Astros. And like you said, this is sort of like we were talking about the Dodgers last year. It's like no matter what happens to them, you, they seem to always be in that spot where they're up there. No matter who they lose, who they bring in, they, there's the machine. And like even without Justin Verlander and uh, Yuli Gariel, they're still going to like reload, you know, Jose Abreu comes in to help take some of the offensive slack off that team. Plus, you know, like they have a full rotation without Verlander. They have a kid Hunter Brown. They not crack the rotation. They have a lot going on there. It seems that they can get anybody to pitch, and they're good. Uh, so uh, I just – if you go back over the years, this is a team that's won 100 games basically every year since 2017. I see no reason to believe they won't win 100 games this year. Yeah, I would agree with that. Since you already dipped into the overs twice, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to take, like, an over here I feel very good about here. I'm going to take the Cardinals over 88.5 wins because that division's still not very good, the NL Central here. And I know the Cardinals only had the one big offseason we're bringing Wilson Contreras to replace Yadier Molina after he retired here. That's going to help them a lot. Always in better help in their pitching here. And this team always has this kind of magic where, like, no matter what you look at the roster, there always seems to be around 90 wins in the playoffs every year. So I'll take the bet on the Cardinals again. I like the Cardinals. I think they're a solid team. Uh, I think they uh, – yeah, I just think they're overall a solid team. Um 90 is a, I, I think it's a good number for them. Uh, could they win 87? Sure. But that's, that's what makes it so hard. Yeah. I just feel like they always find a way. There's always this little magic where they go on this like 
like streak in like the middle of the summer. They win like like seventeen out of twenty, and all of a sudden they're right there every year. Yeah, and and let's face it, that team also has you know two of the best middle of the order bats in baseball. Yep. So uh, those guys are going to carry them. All right. So you've used two of your overs so far. Where are you going next? I'm going. You know, I'm going back to the AL West, but I'm going with an under this time. Texas, 82 and a half. No way. No, <laughs> I, I don't see it. They, I, I know they brought in DeGrom. He'll be great for 15 starts, as you know. Yep, he will. And, and then he'll be back on the on the disabled list. Uh, I I think Corey Seager and, and Marcus Simeon last year, the, what did that do for them? They, they lost. They only won 68 games. I don't see that big of a jump for Texas. Maybe even if they win 10 more games to get to 78, I'm still easily under. So give me the under on the Rangers. Yeah, I like that pick because you guys hear, obviously, you can't count the Grom to give you the full season of stars. When he's there, he'll be great, but he's not, he's not going to be there for more than half a season based on his recent track record. And, like, all these guys, they still have holes throughout the lineup. They still have, like, guys you're count like, you're getting more than one great year out of Martin Perez and Andrew Haney. That's a question also. I mean, like, they look like they won the offseason on paper, but, like, they, they I don't trust them. I, I agree. Yeah. All right. So you are on the board with your first under here. I'm going to go back to the under well here. I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to keep attacking that division here. Once again, Angels under 82 and a half. They won for me last year. I don't know how many times you can tell me, oh, they got better. They have depth. They have Mike Trout. They have Shohei Otani. This team finds ways to lose games over and over and over again. And like, I don't see where the. All of a sudden, Tyler Anderson and a couple of deaf guys on the infield are supposed to make this team like go over 500 wildcard mix. I do not see. I think you're going under. Plus, there's a chance that if they got to a bad start, you're trading Otani the deadline, and then all of a sudden, they plummet. I I agree. I don't see it at all. Yeah. Uh, I, I That's a team that it's been so many years now. Prove it to me. Yeah. Plus, like when, well, like, when Anthony Rendon stays healthy in this kind of for the first time, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, Anthony Rendon, I mean, that, that's a guy who doesn't even want to play baseball. He just wanted his money. Yeah, that's right here. So we've hit four of the five teams the AL West already. I expect the fifth might come up soon here. Phil, where are you going now for your next one? You have two overs and one under on the board. I'm not going to the fifth team in that division. The number's too low. Uh, so okay. I am looking around, and obviously the later you go, the harder this gets. Uh but I think I'm going to take an over here for the – you know what? I'm I'm doing it. Uh, over for the Padres, 93.5. Give me the over on the San Diego Padres. Um, it's, it's not a team that I love because I think that they have some maturity issues, but they seem to be blooming and blossoming into – they're obviously just – talent all over the place. I think Bogarts was a very good pickup for them. They're bringing in a proven winner and a champion to go and join that team that that has a, a obviously the solid core with Soto. They're getting a full year of Soto. They got Tatis back. Machado's a stud. So give me the over on San Diego. And I think that the Dodgers have taken a step back there. So give me the over on the, on the Padres. Yeah, it's a certainly a fair number to play with the Padres. I would lean towards the over with that. For me, it's like I saw enough last year. Things went wrong for them. I'm not going to touch the number, but I don't fault you for going with it. I I think Bogarts adds a lot. I really do. He's a, he's just a he's a championship caliber player. Someone who's actually won something. 
Yeah, that's certainly true here. Now my next pick here, I'm going to go with a team that has not done very well recently, but I like what they did in the offseason. They have some good talent coming up here. The number is also not that high for me to clear. I'm going to take the Pirates over 68 and a half wins. I like what they did to bring in some veterans to help show up their team there. Like McCutcheon coming back was nice. They brought in Carlos Santana. There's also a big help here. They have some decent pitching depth. They have some good kids. O'Neill Cruz, Cabrian Hayes, Brian Reynolds is still there. So they have some talent here. That's such a low bar to clear, and the Reds stink. And I don't buy the Cubs. I think the Pirates, I can see this being like a 72-win team. I clear the number. I think that they have kids on the way who will help too. So give me the Pirates over. Okay. Um, they got to turn it around eventually. Yeah. So, I, I don't fault you. Yeah, I think that this is, I look for always one for one of those overs. Like, the bar is low, and this team can, like, you know, win five more games than they think, you think they will. And I think they're in good, like, it's a good spot. Sure. All right, so, you're up now here. You have, use all your overs. You only have two unders left to go. So, where are you going next? Hmm. Well, Gets tough, but I'm going to take the under here of looking through here. You know what? I'm going under on the Marlins. Uh, they're at 76 and a half. I don't think it's a terrible number, but it would require a pretty big bump from their their uh, ultimate season last year. They're in a tough division. Um, so give me the under on Miami. Yeah, Miami, the question with them always is, like, are they going to hit enough? Because they have plenty of pitching. They did. They have this weird thing going on. They have, like, five different second base and playing different positions here. They have a weird offensive setup, the Marlins. Yeah, the, the weird offensive setup. They do. Their pitching is excellent, obviously. But the setup is on the offense is a little strange. The division's tough. I know the Nationals stink, but the other teams are good. And uh, they're, they're going to have to you know, play a little bit outside the division, obviously, a little more um, so that – Maybe is a plus, although they means that they have to play some juggernauts too a little more. So uh, I think overall, you know, give me the under on the Marlins. I, it's not, I don't expect it to be the number 76 and a half. So I think it's going to be close, but, you know, maybe I get that one with 74, 75 wins or something like that. Yeah, it's not a bad play, especially considering, again, you look at some of the guys they have. I mean, they have Luis, Luis Arias playing, I think he's actually playing first base now. They have, I think, Jazz Chisholm's out the center field. They have Gene Segura playing like third, like third base there, second base. They have like a bunch of guys out position. That never that never seems to work out very well. No, no, it does not. All right. So I am up now here. I have one more under and one more over here. I'm not sure I'm gonna go with the over here. So I'm gonna take my last under here. I think this is a team that everything go right for them last year. I would think expect a little regression of the mean here. I'm gonna take the Guardians under the 86 and a half wins here. I feel like this team got like had so much break right in terms of young guys developing in terms of, you know, the pitching was great. Like the hitting did enough. I feel like another year getting less games against their division is going to hurt the White Sox and twins all should be a lot better than they were last year. I just don't buy Cleveland going like probably a 90 win team. I think it's more like an 84, 85 win team that happened to get hot last year. So I'm going to take the under on the guardians. They can pitch and they have some good players but I agree with you. I think it's a team who got hot. I think they're a little inflated based on their playoff series with the Yankees, where they obviously were scrappy. Uh, but at the end of the day, I don't think the team has enough talent. Um, although the one thing that does concern me a little bit about your pick 
is I think that Cleveland is a team who sets a really benefit from these new rules. The the they have a lot of guys who put the bat on the ball and can run, and and that should benefit them. So I, I think that's a bump, and I do have obviously the veteran leadership with Francona, but but I agree. Uh, I'm not crazy about the team either. All right, so you have one more pick to go here. It's another unders. So where are you going with the last pick? Well, I think at this point I got to go for just uh, who do I think is just going to be absolutely terrible. And uh, there I'm going to go to team who bit me last year, the Detroit Tigers, uh, 69 and a half. Last year I, I thought that maybe they'd have some young players who could blossom. That did not happen. They had no young players who blossomed, really. Uh, so give me the under on the Tigers. I, I just don't think they have really anything that that concerns you. I mean, they've got Riley Green. He looks like he's talented, but otherwise you're talking about Javi Baez, a washed-up Miguel Cabrera. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of pitching under Detroit Tigers. Yeah, it's a solid play here. It's like one of those things, there's so many young guys. We have a lot of growing pains that team, too, whether it's like Spencer Torkelson, all the young pitchers, Riley Green. Like, Riley Green. They have a lot of guys, and we're going to get a lot of playing time. They're going to go through their lumps. Yeah, it, it's a low number. Uh, that That's what concerns me, but uh, that that seems like a team that could lose 100 games. Yeah, for me, I feel like the team's got to like be god-awful for four months, and then when the kids start clicking, they might get hot in August, September. Right, and that can, and that can kill me. Yeah. Like that, that hot streak could pull them to 72 wins or something like that. And then I lose, but, but give me the under on the Tigers. All right. My last one here is like, it says it's going to be the homer pick here. I do think this number is a little on, like did take a hit, obviously when he, when they lost Edwin Diaz in the world baseball class, I could take the Mets over the 91 and a half here. I do feel like there are questions with the offense. I do think that the old pitching staff is definitely a question here, but I think they benefit tremendously from the sh- from the new rules of the shift and whatnot. They put the ball in play more than almost 18 in the league. That will help them generate offense in a lot of different ways. They have prospects on on the horn. They have an owner who's willing to throw money around the deadline to help get this team better here. And I do think that, yes, they're not winning 101 again, but I do think that saying this is going to be a 90-win team or less, I think is a bit too of a bar here. I think their sweet spot's like between 92 and 94. I think I clear that number either way. So I'll take the Met over. Okay. Uh, can't fault you for taking the Met over. Uh... It's not been kind to you most years, but but sometimes it has. Uh, I, I like, obviously, I like the Mets. I like the team. The only negative I have of the Mets is I don't think they have enough pop. Uh, but, but and I think they know that, so I, I think they're going to be on the hunt to get a bat in there to add some pop to help out Alonzo. Um, and obviously, losing uh, Edwin Diaz is a is a killer. It's a killer. The thing I'll point out, though, is like the pop thing is definitely a longer term concern. It's a postseason problem. But like their way they're built, they're going to be very good to beat, tough to beat in the regular season because they put the ball in play. They make plays defensively. They pitch. And you have Buck Walter who's going to be probably one of the fast matters to get this team up to speed on the new rules than any, any other staffs in the league. Yeah, they have all that going for them. Uh, and and no team is perfect. Uh, but but to me, they're, they're, the Mets' biggest weakness is they just don't have enough pop. Yeah. And maybe, that, maybe that's coming because uh, – like we talked about at the start of this segment, they have some kids in the minor leagues who have some pop. And you might see those kids uh, come June. Yeah, you might see them even sooner if, if like, Eduardo Escobar or Tommy Pham don't get off to a hot start either. Right. Yeah. And uh, bring those kids in there. You get. I, I really think that's, that's to me, the thing with the Mets. They were, they were always – they were kind of one hitter away. 
They had been here. I thought they had in Carlos Correa. It's a whole discussion for another day here. To reset the picks on the board here, Phil is going with the Mariners over 87.5. The Astros over 95.5. The Rangers under 82.5. The Hammers the AL West. Padres over 93.5. Marlins under 76.5. Tigers under 69.5. How do you feel about your picks? I like them. I'm, I'm pretty happy. Uh, I, I went strong in that AL West, but I think that the AL West was uh, the layup division. Uh, neither of us touched Oakland, though. I guess that number was too low. Yeah, I had on my list of considerations. I have ones that like better on the under departments. That's why I didn't touch it. Yeah, I agree. All right, my picks here. Red Sox under 78.5. Cardinals over 88.5. The Angels under 82.5. Pittsburgh Pirates over 68.5. The Guardians under 86.5. And the Mets over 91.5. I feel pretty good about that mix here I have. I feel like I got some good ones there. The Guardians definitely my riskiest pick, but I feel like I have a conviction on that one. I like your picks. I think they're diverse. But, uh... I think you got ended up pretty good. I think both of us. So I, I like where both of us are here. Absolutely here. And the last thing I want to touch on here is we neither one of us again took the Yankees. The number is 93 and a half. I feel like that number is right on the nose, in my opinion, especially consider that they had some pitching injuries early to deal with. You're not gonna have Montage the whole season. Like you should get Radon back by the end of April. Who knows what Severino's time timeline is here? I do think though, like they have a they seem to always find a way to be in that low nineties, like mid nineties total. So that's why I didn't touch the number. The Yankees, uh we have barely touched the Yankees over the years of doing this. And I, and I always feel that Vegas gets the Yankee number perfect. Be, and, and I guess it's because of the publicity that comes with the Yankees. To, to me, it's a, it's the right number. And, and the reason I think it's the right number is the Yankees are an older team now. Uh, and what's going to come with that with an older team and this new playoff format is I expect them to kind of take their foot off the gas a little bit coming down the stretch. I don't think the Yankees are going to go all out to win the division. Uh, I think they'd be perfectly content taking a wild card, that that kind of first wild card spot, if if that's what it comes to um, for them. I do like they, – they have good pitching, but like you said, who the hell knows if those pitchers are going to be on the field. Uh they, I like their hitting. I think the new rules do help the Yankees a lot. They, they have a lot of guys who I, I think are going to see tremendous benefit from not shifting them, uh, namely Rizzo and Stanton, guys who really can't run but do hit the ball very hard. Um, I think Volpe gives them a, an added element on the base paths. But they have some veteran older guys who I don't know what you're going to get from. Uh Josh Donaldson, I know Boone's high on him, but I don't know how you could be. Uh, DJ LeMahieu, what do you get out of LeMahieu? Who knows? What do you get out of Gleyber Torres? How many games are you going to get Rizzo? And, uh, you know, Bader, I understand the Yankee fan thinks that he's uh, the next coming of Babe Ruth. He's not. <laughs> Harrison Bader, That he he's, he's a good player, but he is not Babe Ruth. You're not going to have... 60 home runs out of him. And remember, this is a team that last year was the best team in baseball for half the season. And then they stunk for another two months, two months or so. And then they got good in the last month of the season to slip to get their way into the playoffs. And that was with Aaron Judge having the best season of all time. So I, I don't know. I, I, I could see the Yankees winning 95 games. I could see them winning 92 games. That's why I'm not touching that number. Yeah, I think it's the right number because, I mean, you mentioned last year, Judge has a historic season as he carries the offense. Not much change on that offense, which was basically non-existent down the stretch apart from him. I mean, the things, like, I see this, like, 
about 60 percent of their outcome, I feel like, is in that ninety-one to ninety-five win window where they're like either winning the division or getting one of the top wild cards. There's like twenty percent chance where they exceed it and they, you know, like win a hundred games again and they're one of the top teams in the American League. And there's another I think there's a twenty percent chance where like everything goes wrong and they win they win the low eighties. I think that's the range I see with most of it's in the higher end of that scale. Yeah, and it's obvious. You know, you I, I mean we can sit here right now and if you tell me how many games are Aaron Judge, Giancarlo Stanton, and D.L.A. LeMay, you're going to play. If you tell me that all three of those guys are going to play 140 or more games, the Yankees are going to win 100 games. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah, it is a who knows, Phil. We'll definitely check back again later on in the year, see how we're doing on these. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Uh, appreciate the time. Uh, and, yeah, I can't wait for Thursday. The Two-Minute Drill. Right, two minute drills. I think a little Thursday night football here. It's always the weakest component of the NFL schedule for good reason. The league has always had a rule since they brought Thursday night football back full season. I think it was 2008, 2009 in that area. That every team's required to play at least one short week game during the season. That means that even the bad teams have to get in prime time. It often leads to bad games. Last season's schedule was particularly atrocious. Al Michaels made a point complaining about the Amazon broadcasts. Instead of taking Al's advice and you know scheduling better games. The league has decided they want to introduce flex scheduling to Thursday Night Football. For those who are not familiar, flex scheduling introduced in 2006 for Sunday Night Football to allow the league to get bad games out of the primetime slots in exchange for better games late in the season. The idea is going to Monday night this year. A little bit more difficult because you're late in the year and you're going to involve switching dates and times, potentially multiple games. But now Thursday's in play. The league proposal would designate weeks 14 to 17 as flex weeks. They want the Yankee bad game out in place of one from a pool of previously designated TBD games, like, you know, week 15 to have, like, a pool of five games is going to go on Saturday or, or Sunday. That kind of idea. Those games, you ordinarily play on Sunday. You moved up three days with two weeks' notice. This idea is incredibly stupid, incredibly unfair on multiple levels. Imagine you flex a game to Thursday that has playoff implications. Let's say the Jets and Bills are playing on Thursday night, and the Jets are down Quinn and Williams. If the game was on Sunday, maybe Quinn and Williams can go. Because on Thursday, he's not ready. They lose. That costs the Jets a playoff spot. It also screws the fans. Some of whom plan their games when the schedule's released. Whether it's going to a away game, whether they book hotels and flights, got specific matchups, whether they have a crew coming together, they want to go to a game here. The game is on Sunday. Going from Sunday afternoon to Sunday night. It's annoying, but most times you can make it work. Going from Sunday to Thursday. That means a lot of people who could have gone the originally scheduled game now have to change their plans or get refunds short notice, which is not fair. And for what? A marginally better Thursday night game because the unsung rule about these flexes is that you can protect some games. So if you know flexes are in place, CS and Fox both can protect their best games. You're not getting, the, not getting a superstar matchup on Thursday night. This is already low-quality football to begin with, and we're getting it marginally better. This is an incredibly stupid idea, which is the owners want to try and shove through because they think of one thing and one thing only. Money. They think that if Thursday night is flex scheduling offering, they can charge more for the package when Amazon's contract is up. The only so much nickel and dime you can do, however, for the product suffers. I think we're getting extremely close to that line as is. This hurting more than would help. But then I want to end the show for the week. I want to thank my guest, Troy Moriel, for coming on the podcast to talk Mars Madness. I also want to thank Phil Freyetta for doing the MLB over-unders. More stuff like this podcast, including my reaction to the Elijah Moore trade last week with the Jets, what I think it means. Check out the blog or just on the suffering.wordpress.com. 
Check out the Sky Guys as well. We're doing our Mando coverage early. Get that earlier than you get it here. The Bad Batch coverage there as well. Sky Guys podcast. Same podcast five minutes at the top of the show. You can subscribe there. You can follow me on Twitter, mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. That's it this week's podcast. Coming up next week on the podcast, going to finish our March Madness coverage with Troy. Get ready to go there. We're going to talk about the Masters and more. So you have a better week than Creighton fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.